Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 154. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're expressing our displeasure with a certain cloud. And Mike has a bun in the oven. Don't ask. I thought we'd start with a funny from a couple of weeks ago, especially given that it leads us nicely into a related story. So picture the scene as Captain Lou, don't judge, it's his Twitter handle, placed an Amazon order for a not insignificant number of toilet rolls. And while that isn't directly related to what happened next, it's a nice image to conjure with as we move forward with Captain Lou's woes. Toilet rolls safely delivered. Captain Lou didn't give the delivery a second thought. Until 20 minutes later, he noticed the Amazon van was still in his drive. On investigating, he discovered the van had been abandoned. (laughs) An engine fault meant the driver had extracted all the remaining deliveries and simply left the van behind. Initially, not too much of an issue. It wasn't actually in the way. Until later, when someone had returned to the van and moved it across Captain Lou's drive. Still, the keys were in the van. Captain Lou simply moved it out of the way and back to where it was initially abandoned. You do wonder, don't you? Is nobody missing the van? Clearly not. So ensued a standoff between Amazon and Captain Lou. Nobody at Amazon had a clue what to do about it. It didn't fit any of the scenarios covered by their scripts. But to be honest, what does? The upshot of the whole fiasco was that Captain Lou decided to charge them $100 a day for every day the van was parked on his drive and then give the money to charity. Nicely done, sir. It reminds me of a recent Amazon adventure of our own. Amazon Ovengate. Our oven died a death. I know nothing of this personally, obviously. I'm trusting Mike to know that it's dead. A new oven was instantly on order and out for delivery the next day. The next day being a Sunday. Relevant as Mike was able to devote 100% of his attention to tracking his new culinary tech. All was well. The tracking reported delivery was only one stop away. Five minutes later, we were the next delivery. We could see the driver on our Amazon delivery tracking map. He was about 100 yards away on the next road. The problem was he was there for the next 15 minutes, didn't move an inch. Mike was not pleased. Even more annoyingly, he was just out of sight of the CCTV. I suggested he could possibly be having lunch. That didn't please Mike either. But another five minutes in and Mike was all for heading out to look for him. It would actually have been difficult to get lost based on where the map was saying he was, but I wasn't ruling it out. Just at that moment, he rounded the corner and pulled up outside the neighbour's house, where he sat for the next two hours. Mike was pacing like an expectant father. I guess in a way he was, the new oven being his baby and all that. I was just thinking I'd have to tie Mike down to stop him rushing out to raid the Amazon van. As the unthinkable happened, he drove off. (laughs) I know. Not only did he drive off, he drove off with Mike's toy in the back of the van. To say bad words were said is an understatement. 
Fear not, though, the intrepid driver returned within 10 minutes. By this time, Mike was virtually foaming at the mouth. But he perked up greatly as we witnessed him get out of the van and finally escort the new oven to our front door. Only two hours, 45 minutes after Amazon told us we were the next delivery. It turned out his van must have been playing up because he sat outside our house for another 15 minutes before his mate turned up with another van and they transferred all the undelivered parcels to the second van. Finally, they were done. Do you know, you can almost guarantee hours of endless fun with Amazon and their deliveries. Postscript. How's the oven, Mike? Absolutely fabulous. Not only is it bigger, but it's got a grill, a full rotisserie and two trays. If I had a clue what any of that meant, I'm sure I'd be just as thrilled as you are. Also recently, Apple and the right to repair. This has been rumbling on a while. Somehow, Apple have managed to monetize an inalienable consumer right. Yes, they really are charging you to repair your own tech kit. That's not what I want. I was hoping when we were talking about the right to repair, we'd be able to return to the halcyon days when you could just switch a battery out, you know, or upgrade your own hard drive. Maybe even swap a DVD for an extra hard drive with a third party kit. Those were the days. Now everything is just more difficult. And if Timmy can charge you for it, he will. It's a wonder it's not a subscription to boot. In the articles I read, it's claimed to be a remarkable concession. It might be just me that's less than impressed with the final result, but (laughs) probably not. I don't think we'll ever see those days again. So let's see how this pans out. And talking of things that could be better, we're actually on holiday. We have been for a couple of weeks now. And at the start of the holiday, we thought, we'll just sort these few files out. And then, famous last words, we'll be able to get on. So we both headed off to the Finder and our Google Drive in there. Traditionally, Google Drive has worked more like Dropbox than OneDrive. What does that mean? When someone shares a folder with you from their Google Drive to your Google Drive, you have been able to rename it, move it and not impact the name or location on anybody else's system. As a complete contrast to that, OneDrive had this shared with me thing going on. It was a nightmare to organise and manage. But back to Google Drive and the seemingly simple task we had to sort out. Simply ensuring that the Brooklands 196 files for 2021 were all organised. The original Brooklands 196 folder was Mike's and he had shared it with me. I'd moved it to be in an areas folder in my para setup. Para being projects, areas, resources and archives. It had been working perfectly for almost three years. So you can imagine our complete horror when the files vanished from Mike's system completely. Yep, he had no access to his own files. They were on my system, but they weren't shared from Mike. So it appeared that Google Drive had just decided to hand them over to me, delete them from Mike's Google Drive and unshare the original folder. Research was needed. What was going on? 
we tracked down an announcement that was made in 2019 of a rollout planned for 2020 that was put back due to COVID. And the proverbial hit the fan in 2021 after a partial rollout. We traced it back to a deprecation of the old multiple location feature. It was announced that the deprecation was starting in March 2020. The idea was that the feature of this multiple locations would be replaced by a shortcut system, which should have made the whole thing easier. Now, the original multiple location thing was fantastic, but I defy anybody to remember how to set it up without doing the Googles every time you needed to set it up. So in terms of discoverability, it rated zero out of ten. Now, the problem with this new system that was supposed to be more transparent was that it would be more akin to OneDrive and its shared with me section. A hideous system the way that OneDrive had implemented it. Now, they have made some subtle improvements in the last year or so. But this shortcut system implemented by Google would mean that there would be a single copy of the file designated the master version. And then a shortcut to this original master version, be it a file or a folder, could be added anywhere on your Google Drive and point back to the master copy. Google, it's not the same. It's hideous. And if we add to that that there's no disclosure triangles on shortcuts placed in the sidebar and no drag and drop to those shortcuts in the sidebar, then working with it is a complete pain in the proverbial. As if that wasn't bad enough, it's been rolled out in episodes. So half our shares are on the new system, with us watching the files like a hawk, while the other half are on the old system. And trust me when I say we're not touching those. It wasn't broken, Google, but it sure is now. I fear a warning. Watch this space for a whole range of predicted rants on Google Clouds in the future. Over to you for um another rant. So there I was on Sunday afternoon editing some video in Camtasia for my new Excel charts course. And I thought, let's stick the Man City Newcastle game on as background entertainment. It was about the only game that wasn't called off due to Covid and was being broadcast by Sky Sports, which I get via a Now TV subscription, or as we call it at MacBytes HQ, V. The subscription allows me to watch it on the iPad, iPhone or computer, but only on one device at a time, unlike Sky Sports, where I can watch it on up to three devices simultaneously. It was about 30 minutes into the first half when I fired up the Now TV player on my iMac. And three seconds later, the action on the pitch was replaced with an oops, something's gone wrong message on the screen. Underneath that was another message in a much smaller font. We have detected screen recording software. Please close any programs with screen capture functionality and try again. Take a screenshot of that, you said. So I did. And what did the screenshot show? Not the error message, that's for sure. It showed what was behind the Now TV app window, which in this case was Excel. So I moved the Now TV app to my other screen and tried again. And this time I ended up with a screenshot of two Finder windows. Having failed with the built-in macOS functionality, I tried Snagit. Same result. Last option was a screen share with you taking the screenshot. That didn't end well last time, but it was worth a try. 
No joy this time either. The message on the now player had been replaced with a completely grey box. Remember, all we were trying to do here was take a screenshot of an error message. Watching the match, which was the original objective, well, that could be done by just closing Camtasia. With Camtasia still running, I tried one of the other sports channels that was showing a pre-recorded documentary about Formula One, and the same thing happened. So I gave up and watched the game on the iPad using the Now Player app, where I had no problem taking a screenshot. But as soon as I tried recording the screen using the iOS screen recorder, it stopped and displayed the same message that I got on the Mac. Back in show 146, I talked about BT Sport, which is the other company that broadcasts live sport in the UK. So I tried taking a screenshot whilst watching something with their iOS app. You don't lose the picture, you don't get an error message, but the screenshot comes out as a black screen. Same if you try using the iOS screen recorder. No error message, no picture loss, but you get a recording of a black screen. But try watching something in a browser at btsport.com with Camtasia running, and not only is there no error message or loss of picture, you get a perfect recording. Although I'm sure they'll close that particular loophole at some point. I can understand these companies needing to protect what they've paid millions of pounds for, but at least wait until I press record in Camtasia before disabling the Now Player. And like anything online, if you can see it, you can record it. If I was that desperate to record it, I'd have recorded the iMac screen with my phone. Just like those dodgy recordings of films that are quite clearly taken at the cinema, where you can see the head of the person in the seat in front. Or the way I used to watch matches many years ago from a dodgy Chinese feed where someone in China would stream the match by pointing their phone at the TV. Which was fine until one of the kids changed the channel and then we got the Chinese version of Strictly. So a very good rationale for my answer to the oft-asked question. Why do you have so many iPads? Mm, because Apple have the temerity to allow developers to stop me doing two things at once on a single device. That's not what you said the last time you were asked. No, I was much ruder than that. Just what has it got to do with anybody else what I choose to spend my money on? However, one mention of shoes and nail varnish renders the, massive air quotes, lady in question mute. So, not all bad then. No matter how late it gets in the year, there's always time for another sunsetting. This time it's Adobe Spark, R.I.P. Now, we're not talking dead as in stake through its heart. No, it's more of a phoenix thing. Change for the sake of change at Adobe, maybe. Mm, actually, no, it's more likely change for the sake of money. Adobe Spark was a free social media graphics creator. You know where we're going with this when I say free, don't you? <laughs> it's morphed into Adobe Creative Cloud Express. I personally felt the name Spark was a much stronger branding for a trendy social media creator app. Not to overlook that mentioning Creative Cloud only drags up the subscription thing again. So what exactly is it? Well, they describe it as a platform comprising the core functionality of the free versions of Adobe products, including Photoshop, Illustrator and Premiere Pro. It's aimed at non-experienced users. They claim that you get access to one million free stock images and thousands of templates. Not available right now, but they assure us it will be soon, social media tools. 
They don't say what, just social media tools. Now, it's clearly designed with muggles in mind and they claim no learning curve. I'm not sure that they understand muggles, you know, like how do I refresh a page and that kind of thing. But never mind. It's web based, but there's also apps available in the Microsoft Store. There's apps for iOS and Android. But let's cut to the chase. It's Canva by another name. Adobe would like you to upgrade to the $9.99 a month version. There's also an annual payment that takes that down to $99.99 for the year. Despite all you're supposed to get with a free account, the 1 million free stock images, it's amazing how many assets had the premium crown on them. Now, there is a 14-day trial of the premium version, and the whole thing is free, completely free, if you already have a Creative Cloud subscription that costs over $20 a month. It might well be worth a look at, but I can't personally see Canva worrying unduly yet. But I would love to know if you tried it. So do let us know if you do try it and send us your thoughts. One to take a look at in MacBytes After Hours, I feel. It's that time of year again when awards are handed out. Hmm. Not just for apps. No, no, no. Podcast awards. Hmm. Hmm. Apple's Podcast Awards. Inexplicably, yet again, MacBytes has been overlooked. No, we don't understand it either. I'm sure I've threatened before we're just going to have our own awards, and I think this is going to be a thing in 2022. As to who won the Podcast Awards, well, who cares? It wasn't us. Clearly a gross oversight. I can only assume Timmy draws up the shortlist. Hmm. We'll leave that there. Let's move on and have an app review. It's been a long time since we took a look at the functionality and features of BusyCal. We did discuss the dreaded S word in MacBytes 136. I think the appropriate phrase is, you told then a new one. Fair enough, sounds about right, but you know, subscription. <clears throat> More on the pricing later. But we have a long history with BusyMac going all the way back to 2007. 2007 was when they released BusySync, which was a godsend for those of us needing to share calendars. You know, we still have friends who don't have a shared calendar. I know. How do they cope without one? Mike and I have shared calendars for everything. I can still recall storing menu choices for events in there, obviously pre-Covid, so I can only just recall it, but still a perfect use case. And it's a lot easier now, but back in 2007, it was akin to alchemy. We used BusySync for two years, until in August 2009, BusyMac surpassed themselves and thrilled the rest of us with the release of BusyCal version 1. We did a full review of that initial version in MacBytes 26 in August 2009. We loved it. It was all the things that iCal wasn't. And it was the original app that had me squealing in glee because it had the fabulous and now infamous info panel. We upgraded to version 2 in November 2012 and again to version 3 in August 2016. Over the years, Apple improved iCal and then Apple Calendar, but BusyCal still had the edge. Fantastical was also competition. But back before both of these apps became subscription, you could, of course, choose to buy them both. And yes, we did. And I used both. 
I know you use the iOS version of Fantastical and I much prefer Fantastical to anything on iOS. The trouble started when BusyCal went sort of subscription. Yes, I know it's a subscription and you know it's a subscription, but they claim it isn't. So it's the sort of subscription that you can stop paying and keep the current version with no updates. Not by choice, they just stopped you updating if you didn't subscribe. So we'd not updated in months. But as you know, a few weeks back, we were doing the Biggles thing before any update would have had to have been Monty. And an interesting point arose. Would the old version we had still work on Biggles? We had no idea. Which was when we started looking at what options there were to purchase or subscribe or whatever they're calling it this week. Have you ever started something and seriously wished you'd not bothered? Yes, that. There were two ways to subscribe, directly or via the Mac App Store. There were two options if you were going direct, previous customer and a new customer. Obviously, no concept of a previous customer on the Mac App Store. But the confusion didn't end there either. For reasons best known to themselves, the direct subscription is for 18 months. But a Mac App Store subscription is only for 12 months. We were going to need to deploy a tortuously tangled spreadsheet to work out the best option here. If you're a new customer, the direct version at $49.99 for 18 months works out to $2.78 per month. The Mac App Store version for 12 months works out at $2.46. If you're a returning customer, the direct version is $29.99, which is a 33% reduction and is for 18 months, which takes it down to $1.67. There is no comparison there for returning customers in the Mac App Store. In the midst of this flexuous financial frivolity, Fortune looked kindly on us. I found a deal. 18 months of updates for $14.99. That was 83 cents a month. No messing around. New customers, previous customers, anybody, all welcome. It was simple. Just as it used to be and just as it should be now. You make it simple, you make it value for money and I give you cash. So simple. While I was doing all of this research, I found a really interesting postscript to all of this in a review of BusyCal from 2016. It was talking about the iOS version of Fantastical and BusyCal. BusyCal for iOS being 4 99 Fantastical being an outright purchase of, wait for it, $3. <clears throat> Fast forward to now and Fantastical is £3.25 a month. And that includes the discount for an annual subscription too. Would that incomes had risen in direct proportion to the increase in the price of these apps. But I digress. All of these machinations meant we both had an active non-subscription subscription and could finally update BusyCal. There was a great new icon, clearly not a David Hockney, thankfully. The interface was also slightly less pasty than I recall. You'll doubtless remember my complaints about how washed out it had become and their attitude to suggestions of making the colour intensity an option. We like it, for which read go away. The interface was always great and it remains so. It's extremely configurable. So to the point you're able to define things like how many weeks should be displayed in a month. And you can choose between one week being a month and 12 weeks being a month. You can also decide how many days to show in week view. 
So there's one week, two weeks or anywhere between two to 14 days. I love the two week option. It's fabulous. You just get way more context to scheduling when you can see more days. There are also copious navigation shortcuts. Particularly useful is Command and T to go to today and Command Shift and T to go to any date that you specify. Unique to BusyCal are calendar groups. I love them. A calendar group acts as a container for existing calendars. Functionally, they change nothing. It's just a view thing, but it's a way of hiding multiple calendars under a folder. Case in point, I recently completed a six-week cohort-based course. There were 11 different subscription calendars for all of the sessions. Why so many? Well, one for the main sessions, one each for specific interest groups, and I needed them, but I didn't need an endless scrolling list of them in the sidebar. So I added a single folder and stuck all 11 in there. Problem solved. Putting the calendars in a folder also means that I've got more space in the sidebar to show more mini calendars. I used to have space for two months, but now I've easily got room for five months. Feature wise, there are other special BusyCal specific items that you can add. So you can add banners, journal entries, stickies. They all utilize the underlying calendar based functionality. They're just displayed slightly differently in BusyCal. BusyCal also supports task management with both Google tasks and reminders. You can have standard tasks, time tasks, undated tasks. My favorite feature by far though is the smart filters. These are in essence saved views. They include which calendars are displayed and what view you have of those calendars. So day, week, month or list. I just find that fantastic for processing my inbox calendar. I also have saved views or smart filters for scheduling MacBytes after hour shows. I've got a list view of MacBytes and so many more, each with a specific purpose. Another thing that I will never get over the fact that Google Calendar does not do this, but you can option and drag to create a copy of an individual calendar item. It seems so simple. Google doesn't do it. You can duplicate an item in a browser on Google Calendar, but it opens up another copy and you've then got to go in and change stuff and edit it straight away. I just want to duplicate it and then I'll make changes later. But no, it doesn't do that. But BusyCal does. There's automatic backup, which is useful. I have it configured to run every hour and keep the most recent 25 copies in Dropbox for safekeeping, obviously. I do have the integrated weather option turned on. I have no idea why. It's the UK. It's winter. It's freezing. It's raining all the time. But hey, saves me looking out of the window, doesn't it? Then, of course, there's the iconic feature of BusyCal, the original info panel. It's completely customizable. There are additional meta elements that you can add, such as travel time. Never really that useful for me working from home. And right now, not much use for many others either, but it's still there. There's a few features I specifically don't use. So alarms. I don't use the alarms within BusyCal. I get reminders from the default calendar app when it remembers to remind me. But that's a whole different story. BusyCal displayed the option for reminders differently a few years back. So I just rely on Apple Calendar and it's become a habit. 
Maybe it's time to have a look at it, given that it works when it feels like it, which isn't often. There is an option inside BusyCal to add graphics to a calendar item. Don't do that. I learned the hard way. It works. It's fantastic. And it will continue to work and it will continue to be fantastic until you need to export calendars. Maybe transfer them between online services, which was what I was doing. There was one calendar that was failing. When we looked at it, it was the size of it. It was absolutely huge. The others were 10, 20k. This thing was massive. I had to go through and take out the graphics that I'd added to all of the calendar items. So learn from me. Don't do that. Leave it alone. If you want something graphical, use an emoji. That will give you something pretty to look at and not cause complete havoc down the line. There's also tags, but I don't use those either. How about you? Do you use tags? I didn't even know it had tags until you pointed it out. And when I clicked on edit tags, up popped a list. Training scheduled, training not scheduled, free and video creation and some others. These are categories that I created on my work calendar in Outlook. They're stored on the 365 server. And because I've connected BusyCal to my work calendar, they've been pulled through. Categories are basically tags. So you can assign one or more categories to an email or a calendar item. I use tags on my work calendar to define what sort of item it is. For example, all my courses are defined with a training category. And if I'm creating a video, it gets assigned to the material creation category and so on. You mentioned the info panel earlier and how it can be customized. And I looked at the info panel preferences on my Mac. And even though tags wasn't ticked, when I select an event from my work calendar and look at the info panel, the tags field is displayed replete with the actual category that I assigned to that event. Now, there's two main reasons that I use BusyCal. One is that it's easy to add an ICS file. As I explained in a previous show, an ICS file is a text file containing details of an event. Systems like WebEx and GoToMeeting automatically generate them. So when I get a webinar booking, I save the ICS file from the email and drag and drop it into BusyCal and it automatically adds the event to the calendar. You can actually create an ICS file by dragging an event out of BusyCal and onto your desktop. We used to do that as part of the admin when setting up our own events. We'd attach the ICS file to the email that we sent out. But with us now running many more sessions than we used to, it's much easier for us to send a YouTube link and a link to timeanddate.com for you to check the time in your location. The other reason that I prefer BusyCal over Google Calendar in a browser is that overlapping appointments are displayed side by side rather than on top of each other. I just find that that's easier to read. So yes, for me, the upgrade, and I deliberately called it that and didn't use the S word, was well worth the price. Now, we often talk about workflows on MacBytes and how they change over time. I was going to say improve over time, but when those changes are forced on us, it doesn't always end well. Way back in 2007, when I joined the IT training team at AZ, we had an administrator whose job it was to schedule all the courses. She created a quarterly schedule so people had plenty of dates to choose from. All the trainers were based in the UK, unlike now where we have trainers in the UK, US, Sweden, Brazil, China and Japan. We hardly did any virtual training. 
and we had a smaller course catalogue. By that, I mean there were fewer course titles. And most of the trainings were the traditional full day in a classroom type. So instead of running four one-hour courses in a day, which I often do now, each trainer would run at most one course a day. So although we probably deliver fewer training hours today compared to 2007, I think there's probably more admin now. In 2015, as part of the company's reorganisation, we lost our administrator, so the trainers do their own scheduling. Mind you, that does have benefits. Prior to COVID, if I fancied a day working from home, I'd schedule a getting started with your iPad course, which for technical reasons couldn't be delivered from an AZ site. Or I'd schedule a course at six in the morning for Australia and then finish early. So back to pre-2015. The dates of the courses were advertised on the training team's website. So the training administrator manually added the dates using front page. Do you remember front page? It was a web editor and a website manager from Microsoft. Born in 1995 and sunsetted in 2006. Oh, do you remember us buying that? A boxed product on floppy disks, no less. We were in London for a convocation ball, an annual university event for alumni. We were on the way home with mum and dad in tow. We took a detour to Software Warehouse. Oh, wow. Happy memories. It was on the biggest roundabout on the A40 North Circular Junction. Handily and unbelievably, it had parking right outside the door. Those were the days. I was hoping you'd break the land speed record so we could get back home and try it. No laptops in those days. Yes, I do remember us buying that. Happy days, but I'd rather use what we have now. Anyway, after updating the web page, our administrator would manually add the same dates to an access database. Then she would create a meeting in the training team calendar in Outlook and invite the trainer so it can then be added to their calendar. No duplication of effort there then. Then, when people emailed or called in to book on a course, yes, we had telephones in the office in those days, the booking would be manually added to the Access database. And then, the administrator would once again manually edit the page for that course in front page, reducing the available places by one. Then the person who booked would be added to the meeting invite so it appeared in their calendar, and that process would be done in reverse if someone cancelled a booking. Remove the booking from the Access database, Edit the course page in front page and remove the person from the meeting in Outlook. When I joined the training team, the first thing that I did was to rebuild the booking system. And this was at the request of the training team manager. Yes, I know, I joined the team to deliver training courses. But with my web design and coding skills, she knew that I could improve the system. Her initial ask was to improve the system that captured feedback from course attendees, but it very quickly snowballed into a fully featured, all singing, all dancing system that not only captured feedback, but also automated the entire end-to-end -end booking process. I replaced the Access database with the SQL Server database. I rewrote the web pages, so instead of being static pages, they were connected to the database. I built web-based data entry forms for the administrator to enter details of upcoming courses directly into the database. I built web-based booking forms for attendees to book onto courses. And when they did, it automatically reduced the number of available places and sent out a booking confirmation. It even generated the feedback forms and the certificates automatically, something that I demoed in After Hours 88. I named this system DIBS, D-E-T, Internal Booking System. 
DET was the name of the training team. Don't ask. At the time the team was founded in 1997, it was an IBM-based team, AZ having outsourced their IT operations to IBM. So it was IBM who came up with the name DET, which stood for Desktop Exploitation Team. Yes, it sounds sinister, but actually it was all about exploiting the power of your desktop computer. AZ are very much into lean, a business practice that tries to eliminate waste and increases efficiency. Well, my system was lean before its time. The system was in use for eight years. It was sunsetted in 2015, and that was only because the director of customer-facing IT, who the training team reported to, was concerned that if I left or went under a bus, there'd be nobody around to maintain it, which is fair enough, I guess. And to be honest, by that time, I'd had enough of hearing, Mike, Dibs is broken again. And every time it was, it wasn't my fault. It was either the web server or the database server. But the perception was, Mike built Dibs, Dibs is broken, it's Mike's fault. So what replaced Dibs? In 2015, AZ introduced ServiceNow, a cloud-based service for managing IT support. In AZ, it's primarily used for logging and reporting IT help desk tickets. But the ServiceNow developers built a module for managing training courses, and that's what we use today. To create a course, we log into ServiceNow, click Schedule a Course, and fill in a form with the course details. So things like course title, date, start and end times, maximum number of places available, name of the trainer, and the location, which would be a room name for face-to-face -face training, and a URL for virtual training. ServiceNow then generates a meeting invite, which is sent to the trainer as an email. The trainer accepts the invite and it's added to their Outlook calendar. To book on a course, users go to the IT training page in the front end of ServiceNow, select the course, the date, click a book button, fill in their details and click submit. And the system sends them a meeting invite with all the details which they add to their calendar. By 2015, because we were offering a global training service rather than a UK-based one, most of the training was delivered virtually. Yes, I know, COVID wasn't a thing back then, but we were ahead of our time. At that point, Webex was the company standard for virtual meetings. Everyone in the company had their own unique Webex meeting URL. And when Skype replaced Webex, everyone got their own unique Skype URL. And this URL could be used over and over again, just like you can do with Zoom. And that was a real time saver, as it avoided the need to create a new meeting for each course. To save even more time, the ServiceNow developers added a meeting URL field to each trainer's profile. Each trainer would copy and paste the URL of their WebEx or Skype meeting into this field, and that was a one-off job, but it meant that every time a course was created, once the name of the trainer was assigned, if the course location was virtual, that trainer's meeting URL would be automatically pulled through to the course location field. It was basically a lookup. Look up the name of the trainer in the trainer's table and pull through the meeting URL. Two bugs I do remember related to URLs. First one was that the meeting URL wasn't added to the meeting invite for the trainers. It was only added to the meeting invite for the delegates. But that didn't matter, as most of us, trainers that is, had our personal Skype or WebEx URL stored in OneNote. So when it came time to run a course, we'd just click it from OneNote and join the Skype meeting. The second bug was that if a trainer for a particular course was changed, 
it wouldn't update the meeting URL in the meeting invite sent to the attendees, which meant the trainer logged into one meeting and the delegates logged into another. So last year, Skype was phased out and replaced by Teams. The big difference from a scheduling point of view was that every course needs a new Teams meeting. From a technical point of view, it doesn't. There's no reason that we can't reuse a meeting URL. But in the training team, we decided to create a new Teams meeting for each course. And it was because of the way Teams handles the chat. With WebEx and Skype, the chat is transient. Once the meeting is closed, the chat is lost. Yes, the host can save it, but if you log into the same meeting again, the chat from the previous meeting has gone. It's exactly the same as Zoom. But with Teams, the chat remains, which under normal circumstances is great. There's a permanent record of what people typed into the chat. But for training, if we use the same Teams meeting over and over again, you can imagine someone joining one of my Power Query courses and scrolling back through the chat and seeing questions from a Nucleus course that took place three weeks before. I guess it's like the by request WhatsApp group where the chat never disappears as opposed to marooned, where the previous day's chat was cleared and we started afresh each day. So how has the introduction of Teams affected how we schedule our training? Well, it's made the scheduling process longer and more manual, that's for sure. This is my process. I go into Outlook and create a new Teams meeting because that's the only way to get the meeting URL. Creating a Teams meeting is actually the same as creating any other meeting in Outlook, except that Outlook generates a random URL for the meeting. So I enter the date, the start and end time, and the subject, which is the course title, for example, Excel pivot tables. And then I save the meeting and I repeat this for every course. We now tend to schedule six to eight weeks in advance rather than a full quarter. So at this point, I have around 20 to 25 meetings in my calendar that now need to be added manually to ServiceNow. The first time I did this, I struggled to identify which items in my calendar were new courses that needed to be added to ServiceNow. To resolve that issue, I created a category called Add to ServiceNow and made it yellow so it stood out. The first time I created the Teams meetings in Outlook, I had to add the category to the meetings after I'd created them, simply because it wasn't until after I'd created them that I realised that I had a problem. The problem being identifying which calendar items needed to be added to ServiceNow. But now I add the category to each meeting as it's created. To create the courses in ServiceNow, I have the meeting open in Outlook on one screen and ServiceNow open in a browser on another screen. In ServiceNow, I click Schedule a Course and manually enter the details of each course. That's course title, date, start and end times, maximum number of places available, name of trainer and Teams URL. The biggest pain is copying the Teams URL from Outlook to ServiceNow. In Outlook, it doesn't display the actual URL. In the body of the message, it displays the words join meeting as a clickable link. So I have to right click the words join meeting and select edit hyperlink. Then select the hideously long URL made up of random characters and click copy. And paste the URL into the course location field in ServiceNow. And then rinse and repeat for every course. After spending about two hours copying and pasting, I thought there must be a better way. It would be nice if I could add the courses to Outlook, press a button and they all get transferred to ServiceNow, but that's not possible. What about using Excel? 
Outlook lets you export calendar appointments to Excel, so I investigated whether it's possible to import into ServiceNow from an Excel or CSV file. No was the reply from the ServiceNow technical team. I have come up with a solution though. It's not perfect. In fact, it's far from perfect, but it does speed up the process a little bit. And I guess if I can reduce my scheduling time from two hours a month to one hour a month, it's better than nothing. After creating all the courses in Outlook, I export the calendar to Excel. Outlook lets you choose a date range, so I choose the range based on the dates of the courses I just added. Although I can limit which items are exported to Excel based on a date range, I can't apply any other criteria. I can't specify only the meetings assigned the Add to ServiceNow category. So I end up with a table in an Excel file that contains all the calendar entries between those two dates. As well as the ones I've just created, I have meetings, courses that have already been scheduled, time I've blocked off to work on something specific, and so on. I also can't specify which columns to export. So in addition to the columns I need, which are meeting subject, meeting date, the start time, the end time and the body, I get lots of other columns such as reminder, yes, no, all day meeting, yes, no, and more. The body column includes the entire content of the body of the meeting invite from Outlook, not just the Teams URL, which is all I want, so I can copy and paste it into ServiceNow. And this is where Power Query comes in. I created a query that one, removes all columns except the ones I need, two, removes all rows except the ones where category is Add to ServiceNow, and this is the clever bit, extracts the Team URL from the body of the meeting content. I still have to copy and paste everything manually into ServiceNow, but having it in a table and particularly having just the URL isolated from everything else in the body makes it much, much easier. However, it hardly fits with a lean philosophy, does it? And do join us at the next MacBytes After Hours, which is episode 161. Not only is it episode 161, it's our New Year's Eve party. Guess when it is? Mm, New Year's Eve, nine o'clock. Be there or miss the party. And I wouldn't want you to miss the party. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to thecrew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. That just leaves us one thing to do. Wish you and yours a very, very happy Christmas. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So how's it going? Not bad. Not bad? Not bad at all. Considering. Considering we've endured three weeks of them off work, you mean? That, and another two to three weeks to go. It's a wonder either of us are still sane. Not only am I still sane, I've had some fun along the way. You have? Oh, indeed I have. Care to share? You mean you don't know? Would I be asking if I did? Fair point. So tell me then. Well. 
You'll doubtless recall the fiasco with the oven delivery. Absolutely. It was hysterical watching them sweat. Well, I'm taking full credit for it. You are? Yes. It cost me a fortune to pay him to sit there and tantalize them. But it was worth every penny. It didn't end there either. You know all that trouble with Google Drive and the vanishing files? Was that you too? Of course it was. They spent so long trying to fix it I got us both a full day of peace and quiet. You are so bad. I know, but what's the worst that could happen? Well, now you mention it, I hear they've bought you an official Apple at home repair kit for Christmas, so she can tinker with your delicate little places personally. Oh. M. G. What have I done?